Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Are you feeling summery yet, Josh? I feel very summery. I'm wearing, you know, I'm not, I don't want to like reveal too much, but I am wearing sandals. Yes. I mean, it's it's summer. I'm a college But your camp. legs are still fully covered. Well, yeah, I'm not. A, I mean, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trash. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna like a. I'm not like a lifeguard. You know? <laughs> well, you know. Well, anyway, I'm not gonna pursue <laughs> that. Um, so, you know, today, I, uh, what else could we look at, really, for you know, in terms of our focus? But the mounting pressure in the legislature to move the major pieces of legislation that are as yet, uh, you know, have not reached a, yeah. a final draft status by any means uh, in the legislature. Um, and, and to look a little bit, I think, to try to scratch at that some and, and think about some of the problems that we're seeing with unified Republican, you know, government in or governance in, in Texas. And, you know, does it make sense? How do we make sense of it? You know, I... In the notes here, I'm looking at, you know, yeah. that it seems counterintuitive. And I, it's counterintuitive from some perspectives and not from others. I guess the point would be that it's a little counterintuitive probably to the layperson. Yeah, you know, I was going to say is, you know, we, we have a, a former colleague who would, who would make a pretty big distinction between problems and challenges. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a problem, but it's surprising the level of challenge. Maybe the challenge is counterintuitive. Because I think to a lot of people, the idea would be, you know, unified Republican control of government. Why are we seeing so many, so much challenge and seemingly doing what they all agree on, more or less? Right, or at least in you broad know, strokes. Right, but I guess that's where that you know, I there's the rub. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, there's a lot of different places that we could look at. I mean, uh, Karen Brooks had a story in the in the Texas Tribune. You know, Karen Brooks Harper mm -hmm. uh, in the Texas Tribune yesterday or the day before, I think, um, about the budget and 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 pointing out that. While the conference committee is meeting on the budget, and they've announced a few things uh, in the last day or so, you know, the biggest issues and the biggest points of disagreement are still unresolved. And she had a handy, a handy list. I mean, I think we could probably add another thing or two to this maybe, but she got the big ones, right? Which is, you know, still no consensus bills on or consensus on spending on property tax cuts, mm -hmm. stabilizing the grid, broadband expansion, water infrastructure projects, school funding, and, you know, whether and how much to pay for a voucher program. Right. Now. Those are some, those are some big holes in the budget. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, and these are things we've been talking holders. about from another perspective <laughs> yeah. in the sense that, you know, these are the things by and large, you know. That list includes the top four responses uh, that we got in our April poll on voters' views of what it was important, most important for the for the legislature right. to address. And broadband expansion would probably be higher, but for the fact that most of the state's population lives in areas 
with broadband. Right. So, I think that's right. You know, the, so anyway, that's just sort of that's a that's a that's a, a regional concern, but an important regional concern. Yeah, and it hasn't. Concerns. You know, it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, people haven't. It hasn't quite risen to the level. I think in the general populace. Yeah. You know, well, of of water and and right. Uh, other infrastructure projects like the grid, especially, would be mm-hmm. the biggest contrast. Um, now, so there are a lot of examples in there that we could go in. I, you know, we talked about this. I think a good place to start is where there's been a lot of uh, um, a lot of hijinks lately <laughs> <laughs> uh, among uh, the executive branch and the two houses, and that would be, of course, voucher, school choice, educational savings mm-hmm. account, the dedication of of public funds to channel kids to private institutions. So, Whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, you know, which I, you know, which in and of itself is, is kind of a problem, I think, for them policy and, and comms wise. Right? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, the language battle there was, you know, a, a few years ago it became seen as déclassé to just call them vouchers or, or inherently hostile. Yeah. And so we've gone to education savings accounts, but I don't think education savings accounts quite caught on in the way that vouchers did. Setting that aside, so you know, what have we seen? Well, you know, it was a it was a big interior moment, shall we say, for the community last Wednesday mm-hmm. night when legislature was running late. Uh, the house was late, was you know running into the evening, and. Word started to circulate in capital circles that there was a, a substitute bill for SBA, the the voucher vehicle, and SBA, of course, the Creighton bill from from the Senate. Um, that the the House Education Chair Brad Buckley was was circulating, and then a funny thing happened because he went to the floor to do something that is usually routine as chairman, and uh, want, you know, made a motion to suspend the rules so that. The education committee in the House could meet that evening and basically, you know, spit this this revised committee substitute out that nobody had seen. Or we, very, we assume. Very few people right. had seen. And that seems to have been what that was about. Certainly, that was the <laughs> assumption that yeah, was deployed the in the it. ensuing discussion. And, and Chair Buckley didn't do anything to dissuade anybody right. from thinking that, to my knowledge. And and so when he made this motion, it was voted down in the House. And I think, it was, as it was widely noted, State Rep. Ernest Bales, who is not a chair, uh, made a very forceful speech against the motion to suspend, and the motion failed. Right. Now, this was seen, I think, fairly as a pretty good moment for Ernest Bales and suggested a certain amount of you know, stature in the House, despite not being often thought of as part of the, you know, quote unquote, the leadership team, because he's not a chair Um, and not so good for chair Buckley. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the follow-up to that then has been even more interesting than that. So people were very buzz about that. I I mean, just to reiterate your point here, I just want to be clear. I mean, usually these are, you know, sort of, I mean, almost nobody pays attention to these kinds yeah. of motions. So, you know, if a chair wants to go and have the the, the right. committee meet, convene, whatever. I mean, these are usually, you know, you're suspending the rules for the, you know, the, these are the public announcement of a hearing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And right. these are usually things that aren't even voted on. They just listen to see if there's any, you know, dissent from that. And usually there's none. Yeah, and it's something that happens very, you know, usually yes, yeah, a very 
this is usually a short five, interval between yeah. the announcement and the gavel of you know hearing none. It's like a five to ten second process. Hearing no, yeah, hearing no objections. So, so yeah, so this is you this know is very a pretty, unusual. Pretty big brushback, also of a chair. I mean, that's another thing. Too. Yeah, usually right. Chairs are well, given it's a the fair, chairs that do the yeah, that yeah, make, give a fair amount of latitude here. So, so then the follow up. It then. continued to you know, and then this continued to percolate, and by Sunday evening, uh, uh, the chairman Buckley was circulating. Another version of SB8, another committee substitute that was much less ambitious. I mean, and we can unpack this, but basically, it it rolled back eligibility for any kind of vouchers. Yeah. Um, to students uh, with learning disability with with disabilities, which has been, you know, special education has been one of the, you know, the themes of this discussion all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, going even back, going yeah, going back yeah, here. going back years right. Um, but or to those who were attending an F-rated campus mm-hmm. in the public school system, you know the the upshot of this was that the number of students is, that would be eligible for this fell below a million students. Like it was in the eight hundred. And I mean, and just to, you know, pause this for that. I mean, this really is the crux around a lot of what the arguments around the voucher bills have been about. I mean, you know, again, this is for the people who want to pass a voucher bill. Right. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't want to pass yeah, a voucher bill. Yeah, how broadly bill. applicable will it be and how much money are you going to put into it to make this work? And, 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 not only, and also, yeah, and, and and who within that broad swath of people gets basically swept in too is the other Yeah, well, that's, this. yeah, that's, yeah, the, yeah, the, the how broad and the who, right. Because even within that, there's been, you know, in the Senate bill, there were some things about, you know, the mixture of the ratings of the campuses and then the balance of students who could come from A and B and C campuses versus D and E and right. F. And, and, I, and I think the previous, you know, his previous revision had been D or lower. Yeah, I think his, his previous revision had been I D think. or lower, but then that's also an issue because of the fact that, one, most, most schools in, in Texas do pass the rating system that the Texas has created for its own schools. Yeah, ironically, a little bit of grading. Which well, no, I know. Part of me reading that, I was like, boy, this, Perhaps. Is kind of, this gets a little weird. I don't want to get in trouble here. Yeah, I mean, there are there are workarounds, right? Yeah. You know, but also a bunch of schools didn't go through the rating systems over the course of the pandemic. So there's a bunch of schools that actually aren't even falling into the denominator. So there's a bunch of weird stuff about this. Yeah, I mean, like so many, yes, yeah, so many things about public education <laughs> and the data around it. Right. As my students doing research projects on public <laughs> education will inevitably find out. Right. Um. So this bill floats Sunday evening, and the response is relatively negative. Quick, too. <laughs> uh, quick and negative. So, you know, uh, Senator Creighton has not liked these compromises. I mean, he really didn't like this one. Um, but tellingly, Governor Abbott responded saying that he would veto this bill. It was not, you know, it did not reach, it did not serve enough mm-hmm. enough students and or and their parents and and announced that he would call them back in a special session mm-hmm. to consider special education to to consider vouchers. Now, you know this has been something that we've talked about in here, and yeah, you know, I mean, again, the broken record. I keep saying, what's the what's the minimum viable product? Well, I think we found out. Yeah, what is below that right. threshold? At least, now. at least that we know. Right? So we found we got some interesting information on that over the last few days, uh, and then. I think yesterday, uh, this you know the gossip that had been circulating for a couple of weeks, or at least a week, you know, it was sort of dutifully reported by Quorum Report with anonymous sourcing that, you know, Abbott was, you know, that the, you know, the talk was that Abbott would call the special session in September to avoid having teachers basically able to flood the Capitol, as was anticipated in the scenario right. of a of a summer special session. 
Right. So all of that seemed to align with what a lot of the speculation that people had been discussing that, you know, that also, you know, that the governor had some personal scheduling considerations that were in play here. Um, that are unconfirmed to me, although I, I've looked around a little bit trying to. Yeah, certainly. And it certainly signaled, so. you know, his, you know, the extent of his commitment to the issue. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, he certainly I mean, like, it's not a, it's no news if you've been following this, that he's been going around the state somewhat on a tour, mostly in rural Republican districts. Yeah. Essentially trying to sell, you know, I'm not really sure to whom. But man, I mean that not in a not well, in a, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, these appearances like, have had different characters at different times. I mean, there was the. The part of the tour that was all happening at private at private religious schools. Yeah, there are others that I think have been a little less calibrated that were well, staged it, a little less. I that mean, just way. to be clear, what I'm saying. I mean, I, I just want to, you know, again, I'm not saying like, you know, to whom isn't like some sort of a criticism. I just mean that exactly your point. It kind of depends on how you think about it, and the the the, the broader sense is that you know these. These events taking place in rural Republican districts has been, in some ways, an effort to convince those rural Republican legislators that they should get on board with right. this because they haven't been. Which is sort of, you know, it's it's an interesting political dynamic that we can kind of again we'll come back to yeah. probably here. But in this case, you know, as opposed to being at you know small private schools out in kind of you know sparsely populated parts of the state to essentially go on an inside game to sell this to those people's representative, yeah. you know. Uh, this was very much putting your head up over and saying, "Hey, no, I'm drawing a line here," and really putting himself in this debate. Right. In a well, much I mean, more I think I, I think if you looked at the map of where those appearances were and kind of looked at whose districts it was, I mean, these were it was strategically oh, yeah. applied pressure, and there was, you know, I mean, I, I think in I hate calling it the community, but in you know, in professional circles that are engaged yeah. in the stakeholder circles, shall right. we call it? I mean, there was a lot of discussion and and debate over what the likely response to this strategy was. Mm -hmm. In other words, will members look at this and see it as, well, this is politics as usual. The governor's right. putting a little pressure on me. You know, it's a, uh, in a way, you're sort of dangling both the carrot and the stick. Yeah. It's a little, you know, it's a little bit of both. Now, I think the key question is if you're one of those members, you know, do you, See the yummy? Do you see more clearly the yummy carrot, or do you see the stick? Yeah, and I and I think there's probably not a general answer to that. I think yeah. some members probably responded to this in different ways. Would be yeah, my guess. and I think the only point you know I just want to draw out here is that you know if someone were to say, well, you know, Abbott's been pretty public about his support of vouchers, I would say, yeah, I mean, sort of, yes, I'll say, I mean, yes. full stop, yes. However, this is clearly a major escalation in terms of his public strategy because even his public strategy earlier in the session was really focused on pretty narrow audiences. Right. Whereas this is now saying, no, I'm telling you how the, basically how governance is going to go one way or another. Yeah, and, he's and, and he's making a commitment really to a special session, honestly. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have to, I think you have, given what things look like now, I think that's kind of implicit in this signaling. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, it depends on how, how good they are at, cow, at boat counting. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting to step back on this before we move on to the other thing we want to talk about in this in this context is, you know, it's good to do a little bit of analysis check here. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, for continuity. So if you go back to us talking about this, you know, two to six months ago in that mm -hmm. window, I mean, one of the arguments, and I think we did a piece on this or maybe we just a podcast, but. 
not just the podcast. Mm-hmm. Don't take it, take me wrong. Get me wrong. <laughs> podcast is prime content. Um, <laughs> you know, the idea that vouchers were being nestled in this larger argument about uh-huh. parental rights and content right. and what's actually happening inside public schools right. in terms of teaching content, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right now. Right. And I'm, I'm just, I was just sitting here as we were doing this and I, you know, I've not thought about this. So, you know, lucky podcast listener, you get to hear us yeah. thinking in real time. Um, but you know, this is a little bit of an interesting test of that concept, right? Mm-hmm. Because in a way, I still think that's what they were doing. I think that the argument particularly, or this combination of mm-hmm. reconfiguration of the public education issue for Republicans, and again, that, that structure is still and even in these substitute right. bills in which these are bills about parental rights, and a key parental right is parental ch- is school choice. Yeah, it's, getting that, your, it's pulling your kids out of those schools. Right, be, and, you know, and, then, you know, and then the predicate is because those schools are either, you know, failing, quote unquote, right. or, you know, their, sub- their indoctrination, et cetera, et cetera. Or right? it's like, or, or they're unable to provide specific necessary resources right. for specific needful for populations specific groups, of students. The, yeah, Just, so the special needs kids, et cetera. So, you know, but I think what's interesting about where this moment right now is push comes to the shove. The public arguments for this still seem like they're hinging on school choice, quote unquote, or some notion of that. Now, if you look at, I mean, I mean, this came to me as you were talking about yeah, Abbott yeah. traveling around the state. I mean, mm-hmm. Abbott is criticizing the public schools and the wokeness and blah, 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 you know, in a lot of these speeches. Yeah. Right. The, the Texas public schools. Right. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's almost as if at this point when push comes to shove, you have to kind of. They're kind of stuck calling it what it is, mm-hmm. yeah. and certainly internally. And it looks like that strategy has worked to some degree. Yeah. Because the vote margins do seem to be narrowing in the House over time, but they haven't quite made the sale. <laughs> yeah. Right? In other words, now, again, as we talk about it here all the time, this could be another one of those things where. You know, they come, you know, this is, they're closer now than they've been probably mm-hmm. in a while. Yeah. If if not ever. And, you know, they go, I say, okay, you know what? Go out, win a few more seats or, you know, mm-hmm. put a few, a little more elect, direct electoral pressure on people in the subsequent election. Right. Positively and, or negatively. Yeah. And either, you know, we'll, you know, we'll move some people or some people will change their minds in terms of that mm-hmm. pressure. And then we'll, we'll be closer next time now. So I, you know, I mean, I think that, that, you know, that muddled thinking captures the muddled moment, I think, or matches the muddled moment. Yeah. But it is interesting to think about, you know, has this bid for, you know, think about the terms we were talking about yeah. six months ago, has this bid for issue ownership worked? Now, there's not going to be a yes or no. How much has it worked? Where has it fallen short um, and why? And it's still probably too soon to answer that. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it's interesting to go back and think about all of that. And, well, and particularly if you look at the, you know, the overall, you know, situation around, you know, what it, you know, where there's friction between the House and the Senate right now. 
Yeah, I mean, two reactions to what you were saying there. I mean, I think one, it depends on what success looks like, yeah. right? I mean, that's a big part of the argument. Well, right that's now. the point about you know that that kind of speaks that that's where the you know if you make incremental progress, is that enough success? But it's interesting, you know. I mean, I guess what's interesting to me, I think you know we're going to come back, we're going to go, we're going to get to the other issue. We promise. Right. Just one second, but I mean, it, it is interesting in the sense. I mean, what you're describing is is sort of in some ways the I mean, what you were describing there was in some ways the normal operation of business, right? I yeah. mean, this is essentially you know if you're describing right now, we could just scrape out a lot of this and say. We're talking about gambling, right? Because say, so, okay, yeah, you know, right. it ha- you know, didn't even get a committee hearing, gets committee hearing, doesn't go into calendars, you know, gets a committee hearing, gets the calendars, gets to the floor, doesn't get enough votes. Right. Next <laughs> time you get a couple more votes, you're like, oh, we're closer than we've ever been next time, right? But the thing that is, right. is like, and I think that's- And I can tell you some people that are absolutely making that argument right now, and that would be the million lobbyists working oh, for the- Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep for the, the gambling costs. Extend those contracts. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, you should, I guess. I don't know. Anyway- but this whole thing, I mean, you know, and in some ways, like I agree, except for the fact that because Abbott has inserted himself so publicly into it now, and again, I think he's, and we'll come back to this probably, but he's been very, he's been so careful and all, all of the, I mean, they've all kind of learned from each other. Cause I mean, in some ways, you know, in a weird way, you know, totally different experiences, but Patrick and Abbott have come up together, right. Yeah. In, in, in this government piece of this. And, you know, Phelan has certainly been a pretty keen observer. And I think we'll get to this has been kind of using some of the same tools both of them have, which is to sort of stake out a position that then puts, you know, failure essentially somewhere else. Yes. And we'll come back to this. But the interesting thing about Abbott, you know, really getting behind this in the way that he has and even going to the point of saying like, no, I'm going to call him back to do this one thing is it raises the real issue of, well, what if they don't do it? Yeah. It's not a good look. Now, again, if you're a House member, the question becomes like, you know, is is the is the cost of inaction become so high for you that you just say, okay, even though I I – we don't want to do this or the majority of us don't want to do this. Enough members say, hey, you know what? This is just not this is not right. worth it for me to be here, either personally, professionally, politically, yeah. whatever. And then maybe you see a shift. But the thing is, if you don't, then, you know, it's hard to say, either, you know, and Abbott can go and say, well, you know, the, the legislature failed. But the other side of it is to say, I try, you know, I tried to deliver this thing, but I couldn't do it. Right. And so it's, you know, it's. And you're kind of seeing this sort of this dynamic play out. You can see this playing out in other areas, right? Yeah. O- open transition. <laughs> right. And <laughs> so know. and so what we're seeing really, I mean, so so let's like look, we'll turn briefly to another issue, yeah. another minor issue here. Yeah. The other issue of, you know, intense maneuvering along these lines at this moment is the property, the, the issue of how to deliver property tax reduction. Right. Which, Interestingly, as we talk about how much they need to do vouchers, they really need to do property tax reduction. Yeah, I mean, they've told voters right. very clearly there's one thing they are definitely yeah. doing. I mean, like if they, you know, if, if I don't think this is going to happen, but were the property tax reduction discussion to collapse mm-hmm. or reach an impasse in the way that it appears the voucher discussion has reached an impasse, they will not wait till September. No, they're not <laughs> right? going anywhere. It seems to me. No, so absolutely not. Um so, you know, this, the Senate has been steadfast in its commitment to using an increase in the homestead exemption, right? right. I mean, and and an additional add-on to the homestead exemption for, for seniors as the heart of achieving property tax reduction. But the House, and, and until Saturday, the House had had a very yeah. clearly different approach that had been the matter of dueling op-eds and memes and... Yeah, whose you know, experts were whose between... experts were more right about? Yeah, well, yeah, yes, you know, at the higher level, yes, I was thinking more about the name calling. Oh, the and, name calling, sure, I love the know, name calling. The, you know, the name calling in the in the memes, I guess, the most well known at this point being 
I think the speaker enjoyed showing off his abs. I think he did too. So like, I would, man. but listen, I'll just say, I'm just, I told, I showed it to my wife. And I said, you know what? I would too. Yeah. Good right. for him. He's young. He's fit. Yeah. It's you good, know, it's good way him. to go. Uh, <laughs> way to go speaker feeling. Um, so the house has had a different approach. Yeah. Right, and the house is really focused primarily on lowering the appraisal cap, which is basically the home's taxable value can increase year over year. We already have an appraisal cap. So, I mean, if anybody, you know, who listens to this owns a home, they know that the value, the taxable value of their home can't go up more than 10% per year. And no, like I should say right now, we are not tax experts. We are not policy guys. We are, we are, you know, certainly you, not tax experts. We are giving you a general sense here, right? Uh, and so that had been their primary means, you know, the argument, you know, in a lot of ways being they could extend this t to more properties. You know, the homestead exemption only applies to a person's primary residence and only residences. So no businesses fall under homestead exemptions. Right. Uh, and the idea was this would be more broadly applicable. And in some ways, I think, you know, from a policy standpoint, the argument is it more directly attacks the thing that people are concerned about, which is that, you know, or they, they, that they see as the problem, which is dramatically rising home values. So if right. home values are rising dramatically in some ways. I mean, just as an example, if the homestead exemption goes up, you know, $50,000 from what it was now, which is not a proposal, I'm just throwing a number out yeah. there, and your home goes up $50,000 in value, and let's just say there's no appraisal cap, well, that would be the end of that. Yeah, it's a wash. <laughs> right. Now, again, this is overly simplified, and ultimately, none of this actually connects to the fact that, you know, the local entities actually set the rates at which they tax the amount of right. taxable values, right? And so all this other stuff goes in. But but the legislature last session put, you know, more constraints on Well, that. and that's the thing. You know, that's actually one of the things. I mean, just as an aside for people who are following this closely, you know, that's one of the things that I think the coverage has really, you know, failed to address really comprehensively, which is in laying out the, the dueling arguments, you know, for and against focusing mostly on uh, homestead exemption increases versus focusing primarily on appraisal uh, cap lowering is, is that the focus, you know, when they – when People have written about the appraisal cap lowering. They've kind of say kind of blithely, well, yeah, but of course the local entity then goes and sets its rate. Yes, but. Yeah, the, the legislature just had that in there. But but, but the legislature passed a yeah. law that, that limits the extent to which that revenue, that, 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 that money can grow year over year on the taxable values or taxable properties. And so like there are, there actually is a cap on the other side of that, that w does still actually constrain local entities from just, they can't just set the rate at anything. Right. right, and that's very, very clear. So the current moment is a very interesting political one because of what the House is now offered. Yeah, so the, the House counter counter, yeah. counter offered. So the House comes back this weekend, kind of. I mean, you know, and again, I, maybe I'm not listening to the right people. Kind of out of nowhere, and says, "Well, you know, let's still do, let's still lower the appraisal cap to five percent, but you know what? Let's just raise the homestead exemption to a hundred grand." And right. I think the most, the you know, last time we went from twenty five to forty. I think the, the Senate is, goes from forty to seventy five. I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. And now the House is coming back and saying. So 70 or 75, yeah. Yeah, now the House is coming back and saying, well, let's just raise it to 100, <laughs> which is funny. So on the one hand- you It's know, a little for, bit of a middle finger. It is, because on the one hand, you can kind of look at it and say, well, you know, I mean, if you were just sitting there- You know, you're right, Lieutenant Governor, that is the way to go. So let's just raise it to 100. Well, and that's the funny thing, right? I mean, it, you know, if you, again, from a, from a, an outsider, you know, I have an outsider, but just from a, a just like a, if you're just looking at the facts, you say, oh, so they must be closer to an agreement now. And it's like, no. This is a great example of, of this sort of dynamic where now, you know, the House is – let's say let's say the House actually moves this bill, like right. full of process and just sends it to the Senate and they have to hash this out. Well, ultimately now the House has actually passed the most <laughs> aggressive property tax reduction measure of the two chambers. But the reality is I think – now, again, I want to say real quick, I think. I don't yeah. know. But my guess would be – that the budget is not allowed for an <laughs> increase of the homestead exemption to $100,000. I doubt it, 
Right. Maybe. Devil's in the details. Devil's in the details. I know there's at least a couple people that tend to listen to this that can send us an email. Please, and yeah. I'm, correct I, us extensively on this it sound, discussion. It, it, but, sound, it sounds pretty. Or, or, or hone our expectations. It sounds pretty expensive. But the point is here, I don't think, you know, this is not really about the policy at this point. I mean, this is about no. if they do get to a negotiation space now, all of a sudden, again, the House can say without unequivocally, if they do this, Listen, we passed the most aggressive right. property tax reduction. The Senate watered it down. That's the, the, the term that's being right. flown around a lot about who's watering down what. So this is weird, right? I mean, well, I mean, look, I, you know, we were talking about this before, and I think, you know, I don't want to oversimplify this because <laughs> there's so much complexity in there. But when you step back, there is a part of this that looks to me like this is like. And, and I think you're right. I mean, there is the jab at which, okay, mm-hmm. you guys reduced the property tax proposal. Then. Right. Um, it is the setup for the end game negotiation on yes. this because this puts so much on the table. Mm-hmm. Does so in a way that I suspect fairly aggravating to some people in the Senate, including the master of the Senate. Yeah. Funny to me just watching. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard not to have that kind of reaction to this. But it does create now an enormous amount of negotiating space. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, I think we even talked about this a few weeks ago. I mean, that, look, at some level, despite the fact that, you know, when you model it out and do revenue projections and have to figure out, you know, what the adjustments are for the, you know, for the school district and all that, you know, all the things that are complex about this. Right. It did seem to me that, at some point, we were going to come to a, mo- in a moment where we looked at two adjustable numbers, right? An appraisal cap where you've got a negotiating space between 5, five and 10%. Percent, right. And an appraisal cap. Uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, the, 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 the exemption increase, right. the homestead exception increase, where you initially had a negotiating space to, you know, 70 or 75, and now you've got negotiating space to 100. Right. And so in that case... And, you know, if you look at it in that just, again, admittedly oversimplified way, but that does seem to be like, okay, here's the basics. Here's the negotiating frame. Mm -hmm. Let's start moving this. There are only two weeks left. Mm -hmm. And, you know, figure out what we're going to do. Well, and the funny thing about all this. And, yes, I'm going to do this in a way that's a little bit of a middle finger to you. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, and in terms of the negotiating space. But, you know, it all seems... You know, to, to quote, you know, various moments of pop culture, you know, you know, it's the game. Well, I was going to say, I mean, is there any more of a middle finger in Republican politics in Texas than to put California before someone's name? Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, like, yeah. it's not, I mean you know. Not the first middle, not to imply in any way the first middle finger, no. Right. Um, you know, it is funny. I, there is this notion where I'm thinking of, this is not exactly in your pop culture oh, wheelhouse okay. but i'm thinking of the the meme of the three spider-mans pointing each other yeah and that's kind of like you know you you were talking about casting blame the ability to blame others mm-hmm. is part of the the key currency of the ever unstable relationship among the big three you know yeah. and always has been really and it's when the moments that are you know ensconced in in often i think distorted ways in the collective memory of the political class are moments when the big three were able to overcome that well 
it's, it's it, they're pretty rare in my view. Well, and this but. is the thing I think, you know, and this is good to kind of move on to the end of this. I mean, this is sort of the what makes this situation, I mean, I'll just say funny for lack of a better word, yeah. right? Because I think, you know, this is something that's like, it's not really entirely comprehensible either, you know, cer- you know, even to experienced capital watchers, but especially to sort of, you know, just citizens out there who might expect that, you know, with unified one party rule, of government, right. of all of you know majorities in the House, you know iron-fisted majority right. in the Senate, control the legislative branch, that there are there's so much friction here, yeah, and that we even are describing this you know the Spider-Man situation, where he's pointing <laughs> at each other even before you know even before the end, yeah, right. So so what is that? What what is I mean I think you know this is something that you know we're trying I mean we've been trying to kind of get at a little bit. Yeah. I think there's a more explicable version of this where you'd say like well you know. You've got the the moderate wing of the Republican Party, and you've got the far right wing, or something, and like, and, right. and I think in some ways these becomes more explicable. You know, I think a couple sessions ago, when you know when constitutional carry was was just not, you know, was just not going to be passed, and there was yeah. a feeling that it wasn't, you know, something that the body wanted to vote for, the Senate wouldn't want to vote for it, but there was a lot of pressure from the far right to basically, you know, try to, you know, the Freedom Caucus members to really try to push this constitutional yeah. carry, like, and that's sort of something I think tradition is like, oh, okay, that that feels right, you know, there's sort of this group of Republicans and this group of Republicans and they're more extreme. And so, but then like we're talking about tax cuts and you're still seeing it, which should be, you know, in some ideas you think an area of general consensus, right? right? So what, what is that? I mean, what do you yeah. think that is? Well, I mean, look, I, there's a lot of different pieces to this. I mean, I think, you know, a big part of this is obviously institutional. And we've talked mm-hmm. about this in here that, you know, we tend to, I mean, look, there's two things going on. I'm, among the you know the general population, I think it's reasonable, particularly given where our national politics are right mm-hmm. now, that people think of the parties as very distinct now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right, you know, sorting and you know, it's kind of I mean, I hate it. It's sort of the explanation for everything, but it's a part of an explanation for a lot. Is it the combination of ideological sorting in the parties and the fact that the parties are pretty far apart and 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 polarized in a lot of these issues does lead people to have an almost parliamentary style kind of expectation, I think. Mm-hmm. Some of that is at the national level. I think some of the, that's one of the reasons that congressional approval ratings are just so dismal and locked in this dismal right. pattern. Um, but I think it's especially true to the extent that people pay attention to state politics. It's like, these guys are all on the same team. Why are they not just all moving towards the goal line? Right. And it's... Not really the way the institutions are designed. That's it. And so what you're getting is like friction between the shifted the shift in this general kind of ideological climate and in the party system, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, and you know institutions that were designed to kind of retard those those developments. And it's not worked that way, right? So now yeah. we've got these polarized parties in a very divided government. So you've got parliamentary expectations in a system. That is designed to not to actually prevent parliamentary parties from developing and and acting. Yeah, that's interesting. As you talk about that, I think about this idea of like easy versus hard issues in some yeah. ways too, and, and and like maybe if there's another dimension related to it, you know, which is I think a little bit more artistic, and you know, in, in yeah. placing issues, but like you know, issues that probably skew more political versus issues that skew more real. And when I say that, what do I mean? I think, and I'm making this definition up as I go along, but what I would say is, you know. Is this a real problem facing the state or is this a problem that, you know, one party has found an advantage over the other in terms of the politics of it? And look, in a, in a democratic yeah. controlled state, 
you know, you're going to expect Democratic legislatures to to put forward bills that are going to turn the screws on, you know, Republican minorities. And, and it's the same thing here. That's just part of the mix right. of, of what we would expect. But it seems like in the issues that we're talking about where there's a lot of friction, we're talking about issues that are both very real, you know, property taxes in a state that like largely relies on property taxes for a lot of its revenue, where property taxes are to some degree, you know, impacted at the base level by property values, which are totally uncontrollable. Right. Just, you know, full stop. Vouchers, right, which basically takes, you know, one of the the biggest spending items in our state, public education, and and basically tries to amend the system in a way that I think has, you know, a lot of people, especially, again, rural legislators, for reasons that we've talked about many yeah. times here, concerned. Yeah. Grid, Plus educational stakeholders. You know, school yeah. safety, which again, you know, regardless of whether you think it's all guns or all mental health or whatever, it's a lot of things that are not going to be easily, right. and, you know, dealt with. And the grid, as we've talked about multiple times, and it's just any infrastructure thing, is immensely complicated. I mean, so complicated right. that, you know, you can watch these hearings and see the experts talk and watch the legislators essentially try to deal with the information they're being provided, not because they're dumb people, but because this is so complicated. Right. And so if you take that and you say, well, these are, you know, these issues, but these issues are still in some ways, they're real issues. They do have political consequences, but they're also really hard. And, you know, it seems like this model of government is not necessarily, I don't know, it's not necessarily producing a lot of cream at the end of all this, you know, friction, yeah. right? No, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, I, and it's, it's a kind of mundane explanation in some ways, but I mean, I think it's, you know, you're not really... You're not really considering the institutional does institutional design is a variable, sorry. You know, well, you know I, I mean I mean if you're not quite seeing you know, in terms of the context of, well, look, you know, if you guys are in charge, what the hell? I mean Yeah. You know, the complexity, you know, it is the complexity of those issues that drives that. But I mean, in some ways, I you know, it, it's too late to be surprised, I yeah. think, that Hey, Lieutenant Governor has a very, you know, and I don't mean this Lieutenant Governor, the Lieutenant Governor right. has a very independent, you know, field of operation mm -hmm. and, and, and authority and domain that is just not that susceptible to influence by others. Yeah. The governor in his own way also has that kind of latitude. And for that matter, the Speaker of the House has a whole different, as we've said, you know, Texas government 101 right speaker is elected by the by the members not the state puts the speaker in a completely different right. position than the other two who are in a completely each of them in a slightly different so you know what we're seeing is things working kind of the way we ought to expect them and it just it's a pretty great illustration it's like hey you know what let's control for party and even more so let's control for parties that are historically yeah speaking relatively homogenous yeah. Right. I mean, we can look at all these divisions in the Republican Party right now. I'll tell you right now, it's nothing compared to what the Democrats were experiencing, say, you know, in about 1970, let alone even 1975. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, talking about this way, you know, there's an argument to be made in some ways that, you know, the lack of consensus over these major issues and consensus here doesn't even just mean like, OK, we agree on the ideas, but it's like we've 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 hashed this out. Yeah. And we Look, decided, on vouchers, it's, it's, a, it's a do we do it or we don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's you know, but it's also about the extent of these programs and all these other little pieces that honestly, you know, in some ways, you know, if the if the process is not producing an outcome, even given unified control, that might be because they haven't come up with the right solution yet. 
you know, well, I mean, broadly speaking. Now, the difficult part, I mean, one thing, I mean, I think institutionally in all this that makes a big difference is the fact that, you know, the power of the lieutenant governor in this kind of looms large. I mean, it's hard not to imagine that, you know, I mean, it's hard for me not to imagine. This may be just, again, I'm just speculating, but if the senators were left to their own device, I'm just talking about the Republican majority yeah, of senators, yeah, sure. right? We're left to their own devices to negotiate, you know, essentially with the House over really a range of these issues. I think they could probably all come up with something that they would, you know, be able to move. Right. But, and I'm not saying that that's, I'm not saying that's blanket true. I'm not saying that's true for every issue. But I think on a number of these issues, if there was more latitude for the senators, yeah. because ultimately most legislation is compromise, even within the majority party, I think there'd be a little bit more ability for that, or I think they would have moved some of these issues forward a little bit more than they have at this yeah. point. But the reality is that the House is automatically negotiating against the lieutenant governor who basically says, the solution is my solution, yeah. and you guys are wasting your time, which, you know, right. I mean, just imagine, guys. <laughs> like, you know. Well, and I don't, you know, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, because, I mean, I, I agree with that broadly, but it also brings up the degree to which Lieutenant Governor Patrick has crafted the Senate that he wants, particularly the Republican caucus that he wants. If you look at yeah. the, at the yeah. people that have left in mm -hmm. the last few sessions, even in the last one or two, yeah, right. that probably would have made me more likely to agree more quickly with that proposition that, you know, yeah, look, if it was up to the senators, they'd probably, but, you know, there's a kind of Stockholm syndrome going yeah. on here. Sorry, senators. Well, but, you know, that, I mean, you know, that, I mean, we can name names. Look, the you know, yeah. the departure of Taylor, Jane Nelson, Seliger, of course, yeah. you know, we could add a couple more if we went back a little further. Mm -hmm. But even those which are fairly recent. Yeah, well, I mean, when you, when you need, you know, all the Republicans to move stuff the way you have designed the institution right. to work, you can't, you can't lose three, you so, know, or have three, you know, potential defectors. Right. And so, you know, what, you know it's, an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting notion that that. Well, but what layers over this to me, in some, experiment. it's hard for me not to consider in all of this in the back and forth, you know, Patrick's own tr political trajectory looking into the future. Yeah. Right. He said now that he first he said he wasn't going to run again. Now he's basically said that he is. Now, look, I, I want to wait and see on that one, because I think just generally speaking, you know, people talk about lame duck stuff. Look it up if you haven't. Yeah, right. I mean, ultimately, you don't want to say you're not going to be there next time when you're trying to tell everybody what to do. So I think, you know, I still wouldn't take that as 100 percent, but I think he's going to run again. And I think it is interesting when you when you look at some of the stuff, I mean, the extent to which he clearly wants to deliver the victories he wants to deliver and he wants to deliver them in a way that I think is, you know, I mean, honestly, and I don't think, I don't say this as a negative way or with a negative connotation, but in a way that's going to be politically translatable. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, the thing about like a homestead exemption increase is that, you know, it will happen right now. Yeah. Whereas, you know, basically capping appraisal increases is going to presumably, and again, there's argument about this, I'm not trying to get into the deal, yeah. but the idea behind it would be it will it will slow down the growth of your property taxes, not going to, that it's going to give you this big cut immediately, right? right? I think he wants to be able to give the cut immediately. He's wanted the vouchers since he was a state senator. Like this is, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's a pinnacle career defining thing yeah. for him, but ultimately that doesn't, you know, I mean, like I think anybody who's been in negotiation, like if one side is that committed to, you know, this thing, one, I think it makes it harder, but two, the other piece of this, and I think, you know, kind of going forward is like, you know, essentially you have to make your interests the interests of other people. Yeah. And I mean, I, and I think, you know, as, as, as adept as the lieutenant governor has been at his politics and as successful as he's been in the state, and I don't think you can deny that in any way, he's never been one to go and say, let me, let me show you how our interests are aligned on this. 
it's been do this. At least not certainly not his public posture. Certainly yeah. not his public posture. And but that's the thing, though. I mean, yeah. ultimately, that's even worse, right? I mean, if his public posture were more conciliatory yeah. and privately said, "No, you have to do this," I mean, there's that's another model, right? Yeah. But you know, these, you have a bunch of other actors who also have their own districts, have their own reelection. And the thing is, is like you know, the thing about I mean, this whole thing, and I'll and I'll stop here. You know, that's sort of interesting to me is this idea that like, if Patrick goes and craps on the house and Abbott goes and starts saying, you know, well, this needs to happen. Visiting house members. This Visiting house. I mean, do these house members, I mean, like us is, you know, is, is the, is the layman, the average voter. And then there's a separate question. The Republican primary voter going to go and say, you know what? Representative fill in the blank was not sufficiently committed to the Lieutenant governor's agenda. And now I'm upset. Yeah. And that's a lot to ask. It's a little more diffuse than that, I think, for a lot of voters. It's right? it's a lot more diffuse. And I mean, I'm not saying that that's not going to be part of the dynamic in some primaries or, or whatever. Yeah. And it's not going to exactly be in those terms. But, you know, this idea that like, you know, in some ways there's a little bit of a an overestimation of one's own importance in voters' minds if they think that, you know, somehow defying, you know, the lieutenant governor's wishes or not following through on or the governors for that. one thing that Abbott's asking for is going to somehow doom, a, you know, a member who's, you know, again, especially a House member who's usually pretty close to the district. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, maybe around the edges, but it's not going to be like all of a sudden, you know, a bunch of House members get swept out on mass and they get replaced by empowered Texans back. Right. I mean, I, you know, that's the disaster fantasy that they all try to avoid. But I mean, on some of these closer cut issues, I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 the calculation is different for a lot of them. And I think, look, I think we saw that. And recent history has is, is not shown that to be what happens. Right. And, and, and we saw that. I mean, the thing about that, and this is a whole, I mean, this is a whole other discussion, but. Save it for next week. I think that it's one thing to look at the empirical record and kind of say, you know, look, these primary challenges, they're not as successful as frequently as they used to right. be. But it's another thing in the personal calculus of a member. Yeah. Who, even if they think their odds are good, there's an efficiency, transactions, cost kind of consideration that just says, you know what I really hate? I really hate to even have to make an effort in a contested primary. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. And I think it's it's kind of hard to convey that, but I'm pretty convinced that, you know, that's part of what's going on out there. Even if people are going, well, it's not as, you know, yeah, it's, you know, I won fairly easily last time. But there's nothing really better than an uncontested primary. I mean, when you go around election registration time and you talk to members, you know, there is a marked mood difference between the people, you know, think of three general buckets who have a primary challenger, but they're not that worried about a serious primary challenger and no primary. And I should have done that in a more spectrum kind of way. But, you know. Those buckets are pretty distinct. <laughs> yeah. Right. So but it's interesting. in terms of how that how that mechanism works. Well, and then the question becomes There's a lag. You know, what it means practically is there's a lag. There's a lag. And but then also, you know, we talk about this all the time, you know, the fact that this is a multi-stage game. And so the other piece of that I would say too is like, well, you know, does does the Republican primary I mean, does the Republican Party of Texas censure some of these members who don't follow through on the strict line by line? interpretation of their agenda, thus opening up funding for, for primary challengers. Does the governor go and start spending his some of his significant resources, you know, helping primary challengers and Republican primaries to sitting incumbents? And look, right. that's or, a, that, or not withholding, more likely withholding from sitting yeah, incumbents. Yeah, and I mean, and that's and, that, and even the effect of, of that is, I think, you know, debatable. 
But ultimately, you know, that would be a major escalation that honestly, yeah. you know, you think of multi-stage, you know, if you say like, well, should those members next time be more accommodating to the governor or less accommodating? And, you know, I don't, I don't know how that plays out, but my guess would be less accommodating. Right. So it's, you know, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of chicken going on here too. Yeah. And I think that internal game one can, you know, it's out there. It applies unevenly among members. I mean, yeah. I think there are some people who are active in the media space, social media, especially who social and non-traditional media who really want to, you know, say, look, this is all about, you know, Abbott's broken promises to house members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, maybe. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I, you know, I mean, I don't think it's irrelevant, but I, I, I think one can be a little reductive on that. For um, sure. And, and, you know, people are, Members, you know, make more fluid decisions. I mean, some people hold grudges or, you know, I'll never forget that he said he'd help me right. and he didn't. But a lot of people, you know, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. What will you do for me tomorrow? Heals a lot of wounds. I was going to say, most good yeah. politicians don't hold grudges for that long. It's right. a much more fluid space. Yeah, because grudges, be, you know, ultimately grudges become potential vulnerabilities in my mind. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's maybe just a Jim Henson life lesson. Um, that's actually, a, I mean, that might be a good place to end this podcast is, you know, again, as the governor makes a threat, you right. know, Let's, yeah. you know, chill out and see what happens. So, um, I, I think with that, we had some other things we were kind of thinking about, but I, you know, I, I think at the most general level, you know, we are watching people, things get slowed down right now mm -hmm. and it's, it, it is interesting to sit here and try to sort out. Some of the stuff that is just has this like real sharp personal dimension. We keep yeah. talking about, you know, the speaker and the lieutenant governor. And I mm -hmm. think it's pretty clear there's no love lost there. Yeah. Um, and then there's this kind of this factional, ideological, positional interest mm -hmm. piece, you know. And all that is taking place then finally in this institutional setting and I guess that's kind of the point I was trying to make really that I want to close yeah, with is that, you know, those institutional rules, when all, you know, when all that other stuff is floating out there and even if it, it's kind of at a low temperature, these institutional things that we're talking about, very basic things, mm -hmm. right? A bicameral legislature, mm -hmm. separation of powers, checks and balances, you know, they fill that gap, right? In other words... They and they are designed to do that. They inject conflict where one might expect compromise and even consensus, and they're supposed to do that. Yeah, that's the point. And you know that's what we're you know, and we're seeing that in spades right now. Mm -hmm. And so with that, we will continue to watch things. Thanks to Josh for being here for a fun conversation. Thanks again to our excellent production team in the Deb Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Uh, we didn't talk about much polling data today, which was kind of probably a relief to everybody me, um, me included but if you want to look at podcasts uh see these podcasts look at our data look at blog posts the website is texaspolitics.utexas.edu thank you for listening and we'll be back soon with another second reading podcast the second reading podcast is a production of the texas politics project at the university of texas at austin 